Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Sesha Hindi. For those of you familiar with the show, thanks for tuning in to our new time for the summer, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Eye on the Triangle is WKNC's weekly public affairs show. You can find out more about Eye on the Triangle on WKNC.org slash blog and clicking on the news link on our Facebook fan page called Eye on the Triangle. And you can follow us on Twitter at WKNC EOT. Eye on the Triangle will bring you the latest in local news, sports, arts, music, and more. As always, feel free to email us with comments, suggestions, and questions to publicaffairs at wknc.org and continue to nominate people you deem worthy for our Wolfpacker of the Week segment on wknc.org slash EOT. And now, without further ado, I am the Triangle's News. Nothing's gonna get me down, free as the wind, free as the wind. Weekend news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. In this week's news, in international news, in a not-so-subtle effort to spy on Iran's nuclear program, Israel has launched a surveillance satellite equipped with a high-resolution camera, which officials say will significantly boost the country's intelligence gathering. The satellite, called OFEC-9, was launched from an Air Force base near Tel Aviv, and according to the BBC, is one of at least four Israeli spy satellites currently in orbit. To Israel, Iran is a key threat to the country's security after Iranian leaders repeatedly referenced Israel's demise. Israel, who also has nuclear weapons, as well as the West, suspect Iran of developing nuclear weapons under the guise of a civilian nuclear program, the BBC reports. In national news, General Stanley McChrystal has been relieved from his command in Afghanistan following a Rolling Stone article in which McChrystal openly criticized the White House. Former General David Petraeus, who led the surge in Iraq, will take over operations in Afghanistan. The article wasn't the first time McChrystal has been reprimanded for his public denunciation of not only White House policies, but also its top leaders. In the month Rolling Stone reporter Michael Hastings spent with McChrystal, he managed to record enough instances of the general or his staff openly mocking the White House to fill the entire article. Some of the most popular quotes insinuated President Barack Obama's weakness before the military and one renamed Vice President Joe Biden as Bite Me. The general publicly apologized for his comments in the article, saying they showed a lack of integrity but did not recant them. Obama says the change in personnel will not affect the change in policy. In a statement, McChrystal said he handed in his resignation letter so that the mission in Afghanistan would succeed. McChrystal had been working closely with Afghani President Hamid Karzai, according to the Rolling Stone article, in an attempt to make him more presentable as a leader of the Afghan people. Since the uproar following the article, the BBC reports that Karzai said he did not want the general to be replaced. For those of you who still haven't mastered the Internet, cell phones, or any other technology invented in the last hundred years, the U.S. soccer team beat the Slovenians and will now advance to the second round of the World Cup. In other news, Twitter was over capacity today for that same reason. Stay tuned for Eye on the Triangle Sports for more on the World Cup. In a measure passed 10 to 1 by San Francisco City Council members, the West Coast City became the first in the U.S. to require cell phone retailers to include radiation levels 
Beside each accompanying handset, the Federal Communications Commission has found that cell phone radiation has had no known impact on users. But the fine print user manuals reads that the phone should be held no less than two inches from the ear, that calls should be put on speakerphone or routed through an earpiece, and that all calls should be time-restricted. Although there have been some studies that show a link between cell phone radiation and cancer or brain tumors, cell phone industries point to the fact that there is not much scientific consensus on whether such radiation causes cancer. Still, the FCC has set limits for safe exposure to these emissions, defining the amount of radio waves that can be safely absorbed into users' bodies when using a mobile phone, according to the BBC. The White House aims to challenge a federal ruling that dismissed a six-month ban on deepwater oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico as too broad. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar said he will issue an order for a new moratorium, adding that suspending the kind of drilling that brought on the Gulf spill is the right decision. The federal judge dismissed the first ban because its possible negative impact on Gulf businesses was too substantial, as 33 offshore rigs have already been stalled since the spill. According to the BBC, the companies that own those rigs have been considering relocating their operations. Additional cringe-worthy related news this week reveals that after an underwater robot bumped into a vent, BP has had to remove a cap containing some of the oil from the well. In local news, Secretary of State Elaine Marshall received the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate on Tuesday. The News & Observer reports that the party's nomination of Marshall, who promises to be a voice for the average North Carolinian, shows voters' discontent with current Washington politics. The results of the runoff put Marshall ahead with 60% of the vote. Former State Senator Cal Cunningham received 40% of the vote. Marshall will face Republican Senator Richard Burr in November. And in regards to today's demoralizing heat, which, to borrow from Paula Dean's tweet earlier this week, is hot enough to melt butter, we'll be feeling more of it tomorrow. Highs today reach 98 with a heat index of 106 degrees. Tomorrow will crisp in 100 degrees of heat and humidity, but the National Weather Service predicts a dip to the low to mid-90s by Friday, and I was worried it'd be hot this weekend. Stay tuned for more from Eye on the Triangle. I'm Saja Hindi. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. We're back with another week of sports with Tyler Everett. Tyler, the U.S. just played one of its biggest games in quite a while. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the U.S. got a huge win today um, in the semifinals, or not the semifinals, they're in group play. Their previous game against Slovenia, they came back from two down to tie it, and then it looked like a third goal would put them over with a victory, and it was actually taken away on what a lot of announcers, not just U.S. announcers, have called or have termed one of the worst calls they've seen. So it was really disappointing that the U.S. didn't get the win against Slovenia. Coming into today, the England... The England-Slovenia game had a big impact on the U.S. Um, depending on what would happen, they would either need a win or a tie. England won, so the pressure was on. The USA could either win in advance or lose. or uh, a, lose, a loss or a tie was not going to be enough. The U.S. had to win, and they did it in extremely dramatic fashion. They actually scored the game winner in the 91st minute. And for folks like me that aren't soccer experts, soccer games are 90 minutes long, but there's stoppage time that is tallied up at the end of the game and added on to regulation. So it was an essentially... Not overtime, regulation hadn't ended, but it was in, it was as last minute as you can get in soccer. And, um, it was Landon Donovan scored on a rebound. Clint Dempsey had just had a real close shot in on the goalie. It bounced off the Algeria's goalie, and Donovan came in and put it in the back of the net to give the U.S. soccer one of the biggest wins in the, in the history of, of U.S. World Cup soccer. Tyler, how big of a win is this for the U.S.? I mean, what, what kind of happens next? Well, for what happens next, the U.S. advances on to sudden death. There will be 16 teams in the sudden death portion of the World Cup, and that means they've got as good a chance as anybody t- to win the cup. Um, 
definitely not quite the favorite, but it's it's sudden death. Anything can happen. And what's so huge about this is that the U.S. won its group. There were several four-team groups. The U.S. was in Group C, and with this win today, they took Group C. They had five points, They two ties, one against England, one against Slovenia, and then the win today gave them three points. So they got five points in group play, which tied them with England, who also had five points, but the tiebreaker went to goals scored. And in their three games, the U.S. scored four total goals. England only scored two. So U.S. takes the crown of as or the title of Group C's first place representative. They'll take on the win the runner up from Group D Saturday at two thirty. So that'll be a huge game. Um, I would anticipate and expect it might be one of the most watched soccer games in in U.S. history. Like I said, it's been a really long time since the U.S. has done anything like this. To be exact. Today was the first World Cup win in eight years. There had been some ties, like earlier this year and in previous years, there had been some ties. wasn't like it was all losses. but And like I said, the U.S. won Group C. That was the first time they'd won their group since 1930. So very few people that saw this today were even alive. The last time the U.S. Um, won something of this magnitude, winning a group is a huge deal. So, um, so just, like I said, a lot to be excited about, and especially with – um, it looked it looked like it might be another afternoon and night and next couple of days and even four years I guess till the next World Cup would be spent complaining because like I said the tie or the win against Slovenia was taken away on a very questionable call and then today in the 21st minute a goal was disallowed on an offsides call that um, from the replays those who know soccer better than I do said it looked like the player was onside they ruled him offside and therefore disallowed the goal but it looked like a clean goal. And, you know, if the U.S. loses or ties this game and that goal had been taken away, that's all you'd hear about. Like I said, probably until the next World Cup is how bad they got um, jobbed or screwed or however you want to put that. So just great for the U.S. to go through that adversity and then come through it with such a big win. And and like I said, the excitement is just huge because it's anybody's tournament now with it being sudden death. You never know just how far the U.S. might go and and how close they might get to that ever, ever prized World Cup. Did you expect the U.S. to make it this far? I'd heard that um, I'd heard the U.S.'s expectation, their goal was to make it out of group play. And obviously, anytime somebody sets a goal, um, it's not it's not a done deal. It's I mean, a, a, there's a difference between a goal and a worst case. U.S. folks weren't saying, "Well, we're definitely going to make it out of group play," and then we'll see what happens. The goal was to make it out of group play. Soccer is one of several sports that are very popular here. In other countries, it's simply not that way. In Europe, soccer is all people play. So for us to just be on that playing field with other countries where soccer is the the ticket, the sport, is incredible. And it's a huge shock. The U.S. is certainly going to be the underdog going forward. Um, so No, not a shock to make it out of, out of the group. It was a four-team group. Two teams make it out. Um, to make it out of the group, no, not a big surprise. But to win the group with, with a team like England in it is certainly huge. And with the, as I said, first World Cup win of any sort in eight years, first time they've won the group and since 1930, I believe that would be uh, exactly 80 years. So obviously it's been a long time, and, and no, they weren't expected to win the group because they hadn't done it in so long. So a, a tremendously present surprise. And all the more so enjoyable that it that it was in such dramatic fashion, and it looked like it might be such a disappointing loss. And then the goal just wiped away all the complaints about these goals that have been the winning the game winning goal wiped away all the complaints you'd ever hear about the goal that was disallowed late against Slovenia and the goal that was disallowed early against Algeria today. Okay, and switching gears a little bit, what about local news? What about NC State sports? 
Well, nothing on the field. Uh, pretty slow time of year. Summer, obviously, most athletes are enjoying themselves and or working out. But either way, nothing you're going to hear too much about. But Lee Fowler, um, that I guess he still hasn't left yet, but soon to be former athletic director, the search is on as we speak for his replacement. But um, in a rare bit of positive news for him, he actually won an award, won the Under Armour Southeast. They There were uh, four regions, seven categories, so there were 29 total athletic directors that were winners in this in this presentation of sorts. Uh, it was the Under Armour Southeast football subdivision or football bowl subdivision. He won for that region. Um, among the criteria were at least five years and then – other criteria mentioned were a commitment to higher education and also so, uh, the, the candidates had to exemplify teamwork and loyalty, and they also had to work at a school that had passed a compliance check to make sure everything was being done in legal, legal fashion and in a fashion that complied with rules and regulations. So, um, yeah, for someone who's just essentially not fired but let go and, and was somebody a lot of fans had not been pleased with, it's good to see for Fowler that a little positive news for him with him, you know, being jobless right now. And, and uh, yeah, so good to hear a, a little accolades for a, for a man that's, that's caught, in a little, caught a lot of criticism over the past couple of years. How do you feel about Fowler winning this award? The criteria, honestly, were a little, a little ambiguous and, well, I shouldn't say ambiguous. Obviously, the five-year rule is going to eliminate a lot of candidates. And the compliance check, it was the wording on the news release from the site where I read about this was rather vague about what exactly the compliance check consisted of. But if a lot of schools didn't pass this compliance check and then a lot of ADs are going to be out of the discussion because they haven't been in a school five years, I don't know. It was just wording about a commitment to higher education. So I don't know how you quantify that or measure that. Um, so it's not a tremendously impressive award to me it just kind of sounds like and the fact that 29 different athletic directors if i read it correctly were given some sort of award certainly not um banner uh, tremendous headline type news but um like i said it's good to see fowler get a, a welcome bit of of positive press his way after all the criticism he went not necessarily from the press but from fans message boards and, and things like that towards the end of his tenure had gotten decisively anti-Fowler, at least the ones I've seen. I hate to be unfair and only talk about the negativity, but from what you heard, a lot of a lot of Wolfpack fans of, of any sport just did not think he was doing a good job. And obviously this committee, um, it was the Under Armour Southeast Athletic Director of the Year was the title of the award he's going to be given but it was presented by the National Association of College Directors of Athletics, and they're the ones who made the nominations. So it shows that Fowler's peers in the world of athletic directors obviously thought a lot of him to nominate him, and then you know he passed the test, like I said, with there being, I guess, 28 other recipients. Um, not, not overwhelming news, but obviously he was doing some things right, and they felt like, he had demonstrated or exhibited or, or done both of these things with, with both higher education and with teamwork. And and um, so, yeah, um, like I said, I was never Fowler's biggest fan. I was never particularly impressed with him in a lot of ways. I, I kind of had thought and hoped for better performances out of football and basketball recently and even our non-revenue. Sometimes I've seen sports where maybe good in the conference, but just very few teams – 
at NC State over the past couple years have been nationally prominent. A couple nationally prominent athletes last year, Matt Hill won the national championship in golf, Christian Davies in diving, and Darian Caldwell in wrestling. Certainly some great athletes here, but it seems like the cream of our athletic crop is winning conferences, not national titles. And in a conference like the ACC, that's arguably the best in the country, and at least soccer, basketball, and baseball where we've got teams in the World Series and the Final Fours for both soccer and for basketball, that our best teams are at the top of the ACC but not at the top of the nation is disappointing, especially when our neighbors like Duke and Carolina are bringing home national titles and and runner-up finishes left and right, and then schools like Virginia are very strong in in baseball and soccer and things like that. Uh, State just hasn't stacked up, so... Because of that, I've never, I, I would not have, I don't, I can't think of too many awards that I would have been in charge of that I would have given Fowler. But like I said, it's good to see, good to see this for him and, and yeah, a positive bit of news in an otherwise slow time of year. All right. Thanks, Tyler. VIP. Talking to people that matter. In honor of our former general manager, Mike Austin, heading to Oakland, California for Teach for America last week, and for the graduates who still are not particularly sure what they want to do after graduation, we decided to rerun our February 15th VIP about alternative options to just joining the workforce or grad school after graduation. We discussed Teach for America Peace Corps and teaching English abroad. With us here live in the studio is the campaign coordinator for Teach for America, Joe Wright, the campus recruiter for Peace Corps, Marcus Anderson, a potential Teach for America candidate, Mike Austin, and a potential teaching English as a second language student, Anna Andruzzi. Joe what can you tell us about Teach for America? How does it work? Uh, Teach for America is a nonprofit organization. Basically what we do is ask people to take the two years after they graduate and go somewhere in our country across 36 different regions, take those two years and bring education up to a new level. The problem that's addressing is education and equity, which is basically um, to put into a tangible way the fact that an average fourth grader in a low-income community can't read words and sentences yet. We ask people to go in and make a difference for that for two years. Cool. Marcus, same question goes for you. What Tell us a little bit about Peace Corps. Well, Peace Corps is a 27-month volunteer organization. It's a nonprofit. It's run by the federal government. Uh, volunteers will go abroad for the full time. They'll do three months of training and two years at post. We're just looking for passionate people who want to take their skill set, their life experience abroad and help it where it's needed most. Okay. Marcus and Joe, the national unemployment rate for January is 9.7%, up 2% from last January. The preliminary unemployment rate for North Carolina in December is 11.2%. And we felt it was closer to home, too, when the CHAS employment fair was canceled due to lack of regional employee interest. Has the weak job market had any effect on the number of people considering and applying for Teach for America and the Peace Corps? I'll go first. If that's all right with Marcus, you can get the next one. Um... For us, we've seen more people applying um, throughout every year, but additionally, we've also had our need go up every single year. Last year, we placed 3,700 teachers. This year, expecting to place 4,100. So as that demand has gone up, so has our supply of jobs to fill. So good relation. 
Uh, Cesar, we've gotten more competitive actually before that happened. Uh, we see 1,100 to 1,300 applicants a month, about 25% of the people get in. So we were experiencing a spike in applications prior to that. Okay. And are there, you know, specific jobs and enough jobs for the people that do get into the Peace Corps? Well, it's very competitive. So there's always enough spots for people, but if you aren't a viable enough applicant, then you won't advance in the process. Okay. And are you looking for specific majors either for Teach for America or the Peace Corps? The Peace Corps accepts every major. That's actually a common misconception. If you're a liberal arts, then we don't want you. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. There's a place for every four-year degree and some associate degrees okay. in the Peace Corps. What about Teach for America, Joe? The exact same. It's a big misconception that we're only looking for education degrees, and that is very much not the case. We're looking for degrees from everything from zoology to anthropology. How many applicants are each of you accepting this year, or this upcoming year, rather? Well, we plan to place about 4,100. Um, obviously, people from all universities all over across the country are applying, so it's hard to say how many from this area or anything. Likewise, I don't have a set number. It's it's rolling admissions. Last year, uh, we advanced from this school alone 40. So okay. it could be any number. And this is kind of a very broad question, I know, but are there specific stories from participants that make you realize this is why this is why you work for your respective organizations? Yeah, there, <laughs> there, there definitely are. Um, immediately, so many come to mind that it's hard to decide which one. So I'll go with... This one, uh, Sarah Beth, who I won't say her last name for, I don't know if we're allowed to on the radio or not, and that's why. But uh, she went to NC State and was a very active student here. And uh, the Greek system is also very active in our academics. And um, she went out to Vance County here in North Carolina and met a huge problem with education being at a very low standard. And that struck me growing up here in Wake County myself you know, no more than 100 miles away that there was this huge problem. And uh, I was able to talk to her about a year ago now, I suppose, and she had, like, had a huge tangible amount of success where she had taken her students' um, reading levels up for grade levels and was able to just sort of see what an impact that one person could have if they're just willing to take a short amount of time. And it's the same for Peace Corps, really, not just for Teach for America. If you're willing to take that short amount of time to give something back before you start... Are you recording for the Peace Corps too now? I'm, I'm recording for humanity. As well he should. As well he should be. <laughs> Me and Marcus are friends. Marcus and I. What about you, Marcus? Uh... You know, a story that resonates with me would be my own story. I went to the Republic of Nicaragua as a youth development volunteer. And, you know, such I had seen poverty before here in the States, but, you know, abroad it's on a completely different scale. And what you're doing for Peace Corps is you, you're offering yourself. It's, they're not throwing money at the problem. They're throwing people at it. And uh, I did a lot of good work, and a lot of volunteers do as well. Okay. So that was actually going to be my next question. What are your past experiences that kind of um, got you guys involved in the organizations? Or why why did you decide to start recruiting for Teach for America, Joe? Um, well, I'm... <laughs> wow, surprise questions are always so much fun. No. Um, I have had an interest in Teach for America for a long time for myself. I haven't served yet in the Corps. Because I am still, it seems like, for about a decade now, working on... Um, 
graduating my undergraduate degree. But as soon as I do, uh, I plan to do it. So that's why I'm recruiting now, I suppose. Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> he told us a story. So just to kind of reiterate, Peace Corps is 27 months and Teach for America is two years. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. And can people extend their service or... In the Peace Corps, you can totally extend your service. Okay. It's not uncommon at all. You know, you got an unfinished project or something like that. You can stay for more than 27 months. Okay. Well, with Teach for America, you're actually hired by the school district that you work with. So you can certainly keep working with that school district. Or at that time, you can quit teaching and go on to law school or whatever you had planned. The The, ba- the hope of it is that whatever you do, you'll continue to serve as somebody's trying to quit, trying to end education inequity. Okay. So. Marcus, can you tell us a little bit about the different projects that Peace Corps volunteers work on? Um, sure, Cesar. We're in a number of sectors that include youth development, like what I went in, education, agriculture, environment, business development, IT, health, and there's uh, currently an HIV-AIDS focus as well. Okay, that sounds good. And it seems like it'd be difficult to kind of adjust to a completely different part of the country especially the world, um, is there an adjustment period before people start to really get involved in their communities? Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Should have been first to the mic. No. Um, You know, I I think that it would obviously be a lie to say there's no adjustment period. You know, if you move to a new apartment down the street, there's an adjustment period. Um, But with Teach for America, we, we always have somebody in the community with you that has been in that community before and has also done two years prior with teach for america sort of a coach to help get you through your process to when you start to worry and have that freak out moment that you're bound to have if you're doing something unusual then they'll be there to support you marcus (laughs) back to me Um, sure, Cesar. There's there's certainly an adjustment period. Um, I'll speak from my own experience. When you're in Peace Corps, your main objective is to assimilate into the community. So for me, I became a Nicaraguense, a Nicaraguan. You know, so it varies. I have an outgoing personality, so you know, for me, it took three months. Whereas for someone else who may be more introverted, it could take a little longer. But there certainly is an adjustment period. Do you have to know the language before you're sent to that specific country? It depends on what region you end up in central and south america you need to have some spanish for us wolf packers it's fls 202 but come and see me i'll work with you <laughs> okay. uh, and for francophone africa of course you have to have french but every other region that we're in there is no language requirement okay anna definitely don't want to leave you out of this um you graduate in may right i do what are your post-graduation plans um well they're not very detailed, but I plan to go abroad at least for a year, probably a year, to um, teach English, hopefully in Prague is what I'm looking at. Okay, and why why did you decide to do that? Um, well, in August when we came back to school, I was thinking kind of what I wanted to do in terms of grad school or trying to see what I wanted to do. And then I had to think about my boyfriend as well because we've been dating for six years. And he's a music major at Duke. He had his senior project this year, so he wasn't going to have his music ready in time to apply to grad school, so he needed another year. So I was thinking what we should do for a year, so I was like, well, maybe we should go abroad, because I've never been abroad before. It's never really been in my plans. Um, I kind of missed out on the summer abroads because I was having to take classes, so um, I figured I might as well do it after I graduate. (laughs) That sounds good. What experiences... Or what kind of skills do you feel like your experience will equip you with after you finish that? Um, well, I feel that 
Um, I was actually talking to my dad about it the other day, and it just kind of builds character. Um, it's just experiences. I'm hoping to get a lot of inspiration from the architecture and design and just life there, and hopefully to travel some too while we're abroad. So, Okay. And what do you want to accomplish when you're in Prague? Um, huh. What do I want to accomplish? Well, I want to accomplish, I guess, better patience because I know it's going to be like incredibly frustrating to try to teach English to someone who maybe isn't because there's definitely going to be language barriers but um and I just want to kind of find out who I am and grow up a little bit okay and have you heard anything about the Czech Republic I mean is that how you is that how you decided you know you wanted to go there yeah well I had some friends go um about a year ago and um heard a lot about it saw a lot of pictures um they're not on the euro which is nice but they're next to european countries so it would probably be a little bit cheaper which okay. is a plus and uh mike not to throw you off guard but <laughs> you're also graduating in may and have been planning to do teach for america for a while why well i interned a couple years ago i'm a civil engineering graduate like joe was saying i was actually a recruiter uh two or three years ago for teach for america when I had just heard of it, needed a job and needed, what would you say, Joe, minimal pay? Yeah, <laughs> minimal pay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I recruited on campus, and that's when I really got to learn more about the organization. I, I had done a civil engineering internship, and it really just hadn't, it didn't sit well with me. I wasn't sure it's what I wanted to do. And the opportunity to basically do something I had never done before and be able to take complete ownership from day one. So if I'd worked at the company that I was uh, interning at, they were you know, I was on track to get a job offer from them. If I had worked for them, I would have had two bosses and been a graduated intern, basically. But from Teach for America, uh, from day one, you're in front of a classroom full of students, 50 students, 25 students, whatever. You're basically a leader from day one. Not only that, but, you know, education. I, I don't have any background in education. So they bring you up to speed. They train you all summer, and then they give you sort of leadership development and professional development. And it all just sort of added up to this thing that was really appetizing, uh, to me, whether or not I want to stay in education. So it was a, just a way, way better opportunity for me than working for a company that I interned for upon graduation. Okay. And since you can't get mad at me on radio, I'm going to go ahead and uh, push you a little bit further. But you said this is something that you'd been thinking about for a really long time and have wanted to do for the past four years or more. I mean, why? Why Teach for America? Well, without sounding like uh, Homer for Teach for America, which I undoubtedly am, uh, it, it's really, like Joe said, serving what we think is pretty much the biggest need domestically, which is that the the schools in affluent communities get the resources and get the best teachers. I mean, if you're a teacher and you've been teaching for 20 years, you don't want to go take the hardest job. You know who does want to take the hardest job? College graduates who are eager to to uh well you know not not build their resume not even build their resume but eager to challenge themselves and eager to go affect change way more so than walking into a room with fluorescent lights and wearing a uh a collared shirt working for an engineering firm eight hours a day you know yes sir. it's just a completely different uh and and way better opportunity so that's why i wanted to do it and then there's a little bit of uh well where can i go there's 36 different places in the united states you can go live in and for me, I'm going to Oakland, which is a little scary. I've never been to California, but for, for visiting. Yeah, so uh, so it'll be cool. I mean, it'll be really exciting to move to a different place and start doing this thing I've never done before. And it's a little scary, but it's equally exciting. So that's why 
Teach for America. How was that, Seja? Sounds pretty good. Um, so, Mike, what do you expect to encounter over these next couple of years? Uh, everything, basically. Uh, you know, the my first worries were, well, I've never taught before. I don't know anything about education. I don't know how to handle children other than my little sister. Uh, so there's that worry. But more than anything, I think uh, being overwhelmed by the need uh, is, is something that's probably pretty easy to let happen. So, you know, I want to take what Teach for America has done for basically 20 years, which is, okay, how do we address this need? And then how do I do it both in the classroom and outside the classroom? So in the classroom, you know, I expect to encounter people who don't know how to add, subtract, people who don't know how to read, people who don't want to pay attention, people who skip, all those things. But then outside the classroom, I expect to encounter apathy uh, and all sorts of overwhelming things. And so being able to sort of put everything together and say, okay, what can I do as an individual? Okay. Joe and Marcus, what can you guys tell us about the benefits of Teach for America and the Peace Corps? Why why should people apply? I've, Marcus looks like he's storming over there, so I'll uh, jump on it. Um, so Teach for America has a lot of financial benefits, I guess, immediately. That's the first thing we always want to throw out there because people worry about that sort of thing. This is America. Um, what Teach for America will do for you is once you are accepted into the program and you go to teach for the two years that you're teaching – your, any government-sponsored student loan will go into forbearance, which means no interest is going to accrue on it, and you'll be able to pay it off at your own rate over those two years or start it off when you finish. In addition to that, there's going to be an AmeriCorps bonus that $9,450 or more, depending on if you're teaching a math science subject. Um, there is a lot of grad school partnerships. A lot of the top law schools in the country are partnered with us. And, Mike, you look like you're... I want to add to that, too, and this is what I think the actual... The distinction is a lot of people say Teach for America is the domestic Peace Corps. And Marcus, uh, feel free to chime in. But but Teach for America is first and foremost a job placement. Uh, they place you with a job. So I'll be collecting a check from the state of California, or at least yeah. I hope I will anyway. Uh, so that's that's with, the difference there. Salary exactly. So I was actually looking at sort of the pay scale for the Oakland Unified School District uh, today online. And it's really expensive to live out there but peace corps is volunteer so you're out there correct me if i'm wrong marcus and you get a stipend but with teach for america you're working in the country and you are actually in a job collecting a paycheck with that sort of professional development yes, so that's right peace corps is a volunteer organization but you will collect a monthly stipend uh your dental and health care will be taken care of for the duration of your volunteerism that's really good in this day and age isn't it Healthcare? That's awfully beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, Marcus, I feel like we've been a little bit slanted towards Teach for America. Obviously, it's hard to get a Peace Corps volunteer in here. Um, but for our listeners, if you do check out wknc.org slash blog, what else can you tell us about the Peace Corps that we may have not really covered or have been missing that's really important? Uh, the intangible is that it, it's, it's, it's an opportunity for you to engage in a life-changing experience you will go abroad and help the people that need it most and they'll never forget you you'll never forget them all you have to do is bring your passion and the ability to help others and i will work with you to get you into the organization okay and for both joe and marcus what kind of skills do you feel like people who do these programs get to use in their future work well you'll definitely have two years knowledge and international experience, which 
right now transcends whatever job type. It's not just, you know, liberal arts or anything like that. Healthcare, they're looking for that type of experience. You'll you'll be fluent in a foreign language of some sort wherever it is you end up. Well, for Teacher America, there's the obvious one thing that you'll take away is from the Summer Institute grad-level education classes. But I really think the important thing to cover is the the amount of leadership, ability, and experience that you'll get with Teacher America. The first day that you walk into a classroom, you're expected to be able to make a lesson plan for people that prospectively aren't going to want to hear a lesson plan. So you have to find ways to effectively make plans, to effectively execute them, and to really just shine as an unbelievable leader that can capture any audience and have them follow you eventually. So when you, by the time you leave Teach for America, if you're a successful teacher, you will have leadership capabilities like I can't even imagine. I hope to one day possess them. Okay. And how important do both of you feel is international and national experience that you get, you know, for an international economy where at most times one degree isn't even enough? (laughs) I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, so you, you you've stupefied us. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of in terms of this being an international economy, I mean, one degree really isn't enough for people who graduate and try to work in the real world. I mean, how how does the experience from Teach for America or from the Peace Corps help people out? Well, in Peace Corps, if you don't feel like your one degree is enough, we have Masters International, which is a program that you can do in conjunction while getting your master's degree and do Peace Corps. I know here on our campus at State, it's natural resources. So you'll go to school for two semesters. You'll do your 27 months of Peace Corps, and then you'll come back and do a semester or two of that. There's also the fellows program. So that's you got your four-year degree. Then you go off to Peace Corps. You have a life-changing, awesome, fantastic experience, because you will. And then you come back and go to grad school. Tuition assistantships, credit reduction, the nuances are different per university, but that's one of the benefits as well. Okay. I mean, I'm sorry, I have no idea how to answer this question. Uh, With with Teach for America, you can't be pursuing a grad degree while you're in the program, to be honest, because the amount of commitment that you have to have to be an effective teacher in the sort of situations like we place people into educationally, you really don't have spare time. However, having said that, it will put you on a great fast track to pursuing a graduate degree. And really, I think that an important thing to stress with um, Teach for America, as well as the Peace Corps, honestly, is the, the, that you'll be able to put on a resume that you had these experiences, that you can say you held this position, and then to be able to put the, um, I imagine, uncountable bullet points underneath that of things that you took away from it, um, real practical experience, real practical lessons, things that you've developed yourself professionally with i think that there's there's just so much to be said for both programs so i agree with joe the amount of tangible and intangible benefits that you will collect uh specifically from the peace corps i mean your personal development will be off the charts and your professional will be marked okay and so the peace corps application process is on a rolling basis correct uh being placed is on a rolling basis and yes you can apply at any time for juniors and seniors such i recommend that they you know email me at peacecorps at ncsu.edu about when exactly they should do that. Okay, and generally how long does it take? The application process from beginning to end typically takes 9 to 12 months, but I have sent uh, fellow Wolfpackers off quicker than that. Okay, and Joe, there's one more? There uh, is one more deadline for Teach for America this year, and it is, check your watch, this Thursday, February 18th. So 
It's actually at 3 a.m. It's it's midnight Western time. Okay, so, midnight Western yeah, time. 3 thank, you, thank you, Mike, for... Uh, <laughs> I apologize, radio world. <laughs> okay, to uh, kind of wrap it up, can you guys tell us what you would say the overall goals for each organization are and, you know, mention anything else that you think we may have missed? The overall goals of the Peace Corps are, again, for you to take the person that you are, the passionate person that you are, and go to the places that need your help the most and help train the men and women in those countries. Okay. It- <laughs> the overall goal of Teach for America, and I know we've had a good time in here with this interview, and I'm glad, but it really is just a very serious thing, which is to stop education and inequity. What I talked about in the beginning of our interview, our VIP session, I think it's called, is a real problem. And fundamentally, our only goal is to place teachers that are willing to impact that, make a fundamental and revolutionary change, and then after those two years, continue to work for the duration of their life in whatever sector they end up with, law, business, medicine, whatever it is, to fight how how unfair it is to be born into a zip code that's identified as a low-income community and how your life prospects will never be the same. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. Thank, thank you for you having us. Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. Your local arts news. Hi, my name is Robert Fisher. I'm a photographer and a NC State alum. So, Rob, you had a show at Vintage 21 at First Friday. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the show went really well. We had a bunch of people come out, mostly friends, of course, but uh, it was good. It was all black and white uh, shots with a couple of um, new styles that I've been trying to work with lately. Awesome. And this wasn't your first show, right? No, I've actually uh, I used some photos from a previous project for a, a third Friday showing in Durham at a, at a tattoo parlor that it wasn't that great, but... <laughs> This one actually went was much more successful than the, the first. And how long have you been kind of involved in photography or what basically got you into it? I actually took a few photography classes in high school. And my wife will tell you that I was really terrible because we <laughs> took them together. And uh, I was always stealing photos out of the uh, lost and found bin and <laughs> just taking horrible photos. And she was great. She was great at it. Somehow the teacher still loved me and I passed the class uh, or two of the classes. And I kind of just left it in high school. But when I got into college... Uh, in my sophomore year, I came up to the technician and uh, just started shooting again. I actually learned the fundamentals of, you know, how to shoot, really what makes a good picture. And uh, the technician really is where I learned everything about photography. I mean, it was all about journalism for a long time, but it gave me the technical skills, too, to, to do the art. This is going to sound kind of like a weird question, but what, what do you enjoy about photography? That is a weird question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I really enjoy finding new ways to take pictures. Or finding new ways to make pictures. Uh, I think the most interesting photos are really the ones that uh, you haven't seen before. So maybe not snapshots. While those can be interesting, um, I think I really enjoy the aspect of creating something new with different processes in photography. Whether that has to do with you know lighting or different lens work. And photography isn't necessarily your career. Not even a little bit. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? I work at News 14, where I don't do anything to do, have anything to do with photography. <laughs> I actually got a degrees at state in applied math and economics. Okay. Uh, so I've been kind of all over the board, but, you know, I don't really have a problem with that. I really enjoy all the things that I do. It's just I have trouble focusing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Why not make it a career? It's just 
it's really hard right now, I yeah. think. And I think most professional photographers would tell you, especially with the rise in digital photography, with making it so easy, it's so accessible to, to take pictures, it's hard to market that. So I think you'll hear a lot of people complaining about new photographers, amateur photographers breaking into the market, you know, taking wedding photos or something um, and pushing down the prices and stuff. And while that is a problem for people who are already in the market, um, I don't think it's a general problem. I'd say if your competition is doing it for free, then you should be doing something better. So what kind of photography do you enjoy the most? Recently, I've been into uh, sort of do-it-yourself uh, photography techniques. You'll see a lot of people spending a lot of money on new and great equipment, stuff that's you know going to make them shoot better and produce better pictures. But I think the reality is that if you have a good grounding in the understand understanding the basics of photography and really the technical aspect, you can get the same result without spending a lot of money. For example, this last show, half of it was tilt shift. And a lot of people, you know, you can go out and spend $1,300 on a Canon tilt shift lens. I read online that you can make a tilt shift lens with a medium format lens and a, you know, a piece of dryer tube and just attach it to your camera. It gives you a lot of control and you don't have to spend, you know, I spent 70 bucks on my lens instead of 1300 That's awesome. Yeah. What would you say is the hardest part about taking pictures? Critiques. Critiques is the hardest part. And yeah. really uh, understanding, especially from the beginning, uh, understanding that your work is not great. And even if you go, you can, you can take pictures for years and you're never going to be a perfect photographer. There is, there's always going to be different tastes uh, in photos and there's always going to be someone who's a better shooter than you are just naturally. And that's, that's okay. The reality is it's just a creative process. It's not really, a, I don't want to say it's not a contest because, you know, you could be in a <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, it, the reality is it's, it's a creative process and it's just, it's more about um, evolving in your own creativity and technique than it is about comparing yourself to, to other uh, photographers. And where, I mean, where can you get those types of critiques if you're not necessarily working for like... Yeah. A specific organization or anything like that? Yeah, for me, it was the technician. It was okay. easy for my, I mean, my photo my photo buddies would, you know, they would tell me when my photos sucked. And that's okay, because that's, that's, an, that's an improvement um, opportunity. But there are a lot of forums online. There are a lot of people, good communities of people who like photography and really want others to get better. And, you know, they bounce ideas off each other. You have to watch out, though, because a lot of people are just malicious. And they, you know, they just want to tear your photos apart, but... There are a good number of blogs out there. A Photo a Day is a great one. You can get involved with uh, JPEG Magazine's got a great community where they, you know, discuss. And even Flickr has a has a pretty good community where you can just kind of talk about how you did what you did. How do you kind of keep up with it? I mean, how do you keep up with the trends? How do you keep up with making sure that, you know, you're taking a lot of photos and improving upon those? Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, really... Really, photography isn't necessarily that subject to trends. There are trends in photography, um, and you'll you'll see that the more you keep up with it. Really, it's about exploring other photographers' uh, photos. Find out what you like, and then find out how the, how it's done, and do do the research for yourself. You also have your own blog, right? That you've I guess started back up again. <laughs> yeah, it's been. Um, I took almost a year hiatus, but uh, the blog started off as a as a way for me to start shooting again after I lost. A good number of photos on a on a tragic external hard drive crash. Oh no! But my uh, my wife, then my girlfriend, said, uh, you know, you should look at the word of the day from dictionary.com, and 
go take a picture of it. And so I spent about three months um, every every weekday taking a photo of whatever the word of the day was. And it, it was a great exercise because it, first of all, got me out of bed. Um, and then it also got me shooting. So it was, uh, it was nice to have, you know, that motivation. Right. And what is the blog link? It's photodeclamo.blogspot.com. And you can check for that link on wknc.org slash blog after the show. Okay. And going back through your photo history, what are some of, not your best photos, but your favorite photos? One of my favorite photos was when my dad was visiting. And he, the word of the day for the blog was uh, cormorant. It's a type of bird, but it also means someone who ravenous, someone who eats a lot and just gorges. So he, he and I went to cook out and bought 10 hamburgers and just set them on a plate, got a big glass of milk, and then just smeared his face <laughs> and his shirt with ketchup and mustard and lit up the background pretty well uh, and everything. We bought some wallpaper um, from the thrift store and put it all together, and it was it was really fun. And I, I, got, I actually learned a lot from it, too, just in terms of uh, lighting. And I think that wraps it up for us. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Check out Rob's photography. You can go to Vintage 21 until the end of the month. This was Community Canvas on Eye in the Triangle. I'm Seja Hindi. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Tommy Anderson. This week's Hear This features Neil Leiter. Neil grew up in Raleigh and currently spends most of his time in Brussels, Belgium, where he is a member of the Brussels Chamber Orchestra. Along with help from the Raleigh-based Friends of the Brussels Chamber Orchestra, Neil has, for three years, brought world-class chamber music talent to the Triangle as the organizer of the Cross Currents Chamber Music and Arts Festival. The third installment kicks off July 3rd in downtown Raleigh. So, Neil, you lived in Belgium for several years. What made you want to come back to Raleigh and start this festival? Well, I, I really enjoy Raleigh. I grew up here. I spent 20 years of my life here. And I was really, really enthusiastic to try to, to bring this group, the Brussels Chamber Orchestra that I've been playing with for the last five years, to Raleigh. But also that Raleigh in the summer doesn't have very much programmed classical music or classical music for really serious classical music. The symphony has their, their concert series during the summer, but it's it's pops in the park and I thought there was really a, a need for, for serious classical music here in the summer at a reasonable price that people can, especially young people, can get involved with during the summer. And so three years ago, we decided, or I convinced my chamber orchestra to give it a try. And I brought them all to Raleigh, and they, they love it. They love the, the hospitality of people in Raleigh, the enthusiasm of all the community getting behind us for this festival. It's been fantastic for uh, for the artists to, to come to the United States, to experience the culture here, and also to share the culture that we bring from, from Europe. So the festival's in its third year. It's obviously been good for the community. Raleigh's enjoyed it. The participants have enjoyed it. But how did that initial pitch go? You know, you going to the Brussels Chamber Orchestra saying, hey, you know, let's try Raleigh. They didn't get it um, at all. And I, I tried to explain that, you know, Raleigh is a really educated place. You know, a lot of universities, a lot of young people, a lot of culture. And they just had to trust me. And, and once they got here, they realized uh, what the potential Raleigh had to offer and Carrie had to offer and and it's been an easy sell since then. They, they, they're always really enthusiastic to come back. But that first year was, you know, they, they just didn't understand. And, and they, thank, goodness, uh, thank goodness they, they trusted me. So. so in the five years that it has been since you've lived in Raleigh permanently, have you noticed a difference between then and now in terms of the public's just general reception to classical music and arts? It's a, it's a hard question. I mean, 
when you don't live in Raleigh permanently, it's hard to really see the, the drastic changes. But I think Raleigh's becoming much more, you know, tied into the, the classical music. You have a really nice performing arts center now with three great venues at the Progress, um, Progress Energy Performing Arts Center. The North Carolina Symphony um, with Grant Llewellyn is continuing to, to be a, a positive influence here. And I just felt that there was a void and a need for this um, serious chamber music in the summer at prices that people could come to. We, we don't charge anything more than $15 by concert. And we, we believe that everybody should have access to, to chamber music and that chamber music is a great first way to have a contact with classical music. It's in a smaller setting, um, less musicians. You can see really the interaction between the musicians. In my chamber orchestra, we don't have a conductor. So it, I think for a first time chamber music um, goer, it's really interesting because you get to see how the musicians move together, how they breathe together in order to, to play together. And in a symphony orchestra, you know, everybody's following the conductor and there's less of this direct interaction between the musicians. And I think chamber music is a great first interaction for, for people to have with, with classical music. So could you tell us just a little bit about the logistics of the festival, what we could expect? Well, this summer we're actually going to make a, a focus on jazz uh, as a chamber art. Um, the, our cham- my chamber orchestra, the Brussels Chamber Orchestra, just did a project with the Pierre and Cards Jazz Quintet. And we're going to bring that project with, um, with us to Raleigh this year. It's, a, it's really a mix between classical music and jazz. And that will be at A.J. Fletcher on July 3rd. They will also have a solo concert. This Pierre Card Jazz Quintet will bring in a, a good friend of mine from growing up, Will Scruggs, and his group, the Will Scruggs Fellowship from Atlanta, Georgia. It's another um, jazz initiative part of the festival. But we will continue really with the classical music part as well. We have Gabrielle Lipkin, an Israeli-born cellist, coming again with us this year. Um, that will be July 11th at Progress Energy Center. We'll do another project with the North Carolina Symphony. We'll feature three soloists from the North Carolina Symphony at a concert in Cary at Bond Park on July 10th. We're going to do a Brussels Chamber Orchestra-only concert for the first time this year with no soloists, just pure chamber music. It's not scheduled yet, but either July 6th or 7th at A.J. Fletcher. So we're going to try to have um, a real mix between jazz, classical music, and uh, soloists this year. should be a, a really interesting festival between July 1st and 12th. There'll be an event every day. Um, there'll be many open rehearsals. You don't have to come to concerts. Open rehearsals are always free. There'll be a lot of CD presentations. All the artists will bring their new CDs. Wow, so it's a pretty well-rounded festival, I guess you'd say. Um, so coming from abroad, what is the main issue with getting everyone together and bringing them to Raleigh? Well, oddly enough, the government and the visas are, are a big obstacle. We have to convince the government that we're of international caliber to be able to, to get visas, and it's a, it's a long process, and ex- that's the big, biggest hurdle as far as bringing everybody here. But once we get here, the, the culture difference is sometimes a, a hurdle. Language differences. Um, people are often surprised how friendly people are directly in Raleigh. In Europe, people are much more reserved. It takes time to become friends with somebody. And here, uh, people were initially shocked by how quickly people were we're friends with them, and and that was a, an initial hurdle to get over. And now people, the chamber orchestra and the artists are are really looking forward to that really direct friendship that we get in Raleigh every year. So it's a very diverse group. Obviously, what element other than music, I guess, brought you all together? Well, I was not part of the orchestra when it formed ten years ago, but initially the orchestra um, was formed by eleven musicians studying together at the Royal Conservatory in Brussels, who were looking for. Uh, a venue, uh, a group together to 
to really push the boundaries of what the conservatory had to offer. And it was a, a large success. They were almost immediately on tour in Japan, on tour in Germany. It was really an, initially a, a very big success, and the orchestra very quickly was was made into an in-residence ensemble of the conservatory. And so for the last eight years, this, this orchestra has been the in-residence ensemble of the, the Royal Conservatory in Brussels. And though the members have changed over the years, the, the international aspect has, has stayed and the blending of cultures and the working beyond the, the limits of a normal chamber orchestra. So with the festival right around the corner, what aspect are you looking forward to the most? Well, I'm really excited this year to bring the, um, the Strings Attached project. That's the project with Pierre Encart and um, the Brussels Chamber Orchestra. It's a really interesting project that that really combines chamber music and jazz in a way that I'm I'm not sure it's ever been done before, especially not in the United States. Um, I'm, it's it's something that that really blends string playing, of course, and but really this this idea of communication in a way that that jazz musicians don't do it, and in a way that chamber music, musicians don't do it. So we really get a, a new kind of of musical communication that I don't think has, has ever happened before. So I think in Raleigh, it'll be really a great place to, to bring this new arts communication. So, Neil, we're very grateful for you giving us some of your time. Best of luck with the festival. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Sure. Uh, as we get closer and closer to the, the festival, the schedule will get more defined, and I would like people to check out our website, crestcurrentsfestival.com. And if you're interested more about the Chamber Orchestra, that's brusselschamberorchestra.com. Um, if you have any questions, the director of the festival is, is Carrie Knowles, and she can be reached at the Free Range Studio and Gallery here in Raleigh, North Carolina. The 2010 Cross Currents Chamber Music and Arts Festival will kick off Friday, July 2nd at Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh, where there will be a meet and greet with the musicians from the Brussels Chamber Orchestra and the Pierre Encart Quintet. For full information about the festival, you can visit crosscurrentsfestival.com. This is for people who want to take it to a whole other level Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. A spotlight on those who go above and beyond. You're listening to Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. I'm Allison Harmon, and I'm here with Lara Marizella, a senior in art and design. Thanks for coming in, Lara. Thanks for having me, Allison. You recently won an award from the Boys and Girls Club of Wake County. That's correct. And what was that award? I was nominated for part-time staff of the year for the state of North Carolina, and I won. So what do you do at the Boys and Girls Club? I teach art. Um, I started teaching there about two years ago with a work study through NC State, and then they had a position open, and they hired me at Washington Boys and Girls Club. It's mostly elementary school students. There's some teenagers that go there, and I teach art after school and in the summer. What kind of stuff do you do with them? What kind of art? Right now, we are working on painting the ceiling tiles in our art room. We're almost finished with our room, and then we're going to do the other rooms of the Boys and Girls Club. And we're working on having a fashion show at the end of the summer. For those listeners who went to Art to Wear in April, you might have seen Laura's line. Um, what was your line called again? Color Me Free. And you might have recognized two of the, was it two Boys and Girls Club members? Yes. Okay, and are they in your class? They are. They go to Washington Elementary School and they come to art classes at the Boys and Girls Club. And one of our junior staff members, who is 17, she was also a model. 
you also won an award at Cameron Village with for the Boys and Girls Club, Is that yes. or with the Boys and Girls Club. We entered a sculpture contest um, through Cameron Village called Scrap to Sculpture, and you take recyclable materials and you make something out of it. It was for Earth Day. It was like a month-long celebration of Earth Day. And our group won first place, and we got to take home $1,000 to the Boys and Girls Club. Laura, working with kids has to be pretty amusing. Do you have a funny story? I come home with a lot of funny stories every day. I think that one of the funniest times, unfortunately, it was when Michael Jackson passed away. We had Michael Jackson Tribute Day in art class, and we learned how to draw him. I printed off pictures of Michael Jackson throughout the decades, and it turns out they know everything about Michael Jackson already. So for our talent show at the end of the summer, they all wanted to make Jackson 5 groups and sing Michael Jackson songs. So there are going to be multiple Jackson 5s? Yes, probably again this summer. (laughs) Okay. You also recently started another job where you're working with kids, is that right? Yes, I just started this past month working as an intern at Duke Hospital with a program called Arts for Life, and they teach art lessons to cancer patients that are in the clinic for the day. Are you doing the same types of things at Duke that you are at the Boys and Girls Club? A lot of the projects are similar, but there are less kids at Duke, so there's more time that you can spend with each individual patient, and a lot of the kids aren't currently enrolled in school so there's a lot of projects that work on knowing your shapes and knowing your colors and learning how to use scissors so they're a little bit slower and there's more attention spent with them but they're very similar projects and do you plan to keep volunteering with these organizations until you graduate and maybe beyond yes um i'm not quite sure what will happen after graduation but i can see myself working with children for the rest of my life Okay, thank you so much for coming in, Lara. Thanks. To find out more about Wolfpacker of the Week or find out how you can nominate someone or yourself, go to WKNC.org 